This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A warning after a woman is attacked in her own home. This is obviously a horrible and very disturbing crime that's occurred. The search for two suspects who posed as police officers. Parents concerned about the COVID variant. Feeling a little more nervous and a little bit more um, upset. Also, the crackdown on a condo nightclub. I've never been arrested. What's next for the penthouse partiers? And the looming strike that could throw your commute off track. We hope both sides uh, get together and strike a deal. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. A Vancouver woman is fighting for her life after a brutal, premeditated attack inside her own home. And what's particularly disturbing is she appears to have let the two suspects in because they were posing as police officers. A citywide warning has now been issued, and as Sarah McDonald reports, the suspects remain on the run. Whatever happened inside this house, just steps away from Queen Elizabeth Park, in the early morning hours of Sunday, was vicious and violent. Someone invaded our neighbor's house and she was badly injured. I think they just caught her off guard because she usually doesn't open her door. When it comes to crucial details surrounding who attacked the elderly woman living here and why, police either don't know or won't say, only warning the public her two attackers gained entry through deception. This uh, elderly senior um, we believe let two people into her home, likely believing that they were police officers. So they weren't necessarily in uniform? These people were posing as police. Yes. Did you say if they were posing as plain clothes? Uh, no, I'm not going to get into those details. We don't know if it was targeted or random. Um, they did say that there's a lot more to the story. The 78-year-old victim, identified by neighbors as Usha Singh, is now in hospital with injuries she may not survive. Only discovered hours after the home invasion when a friend grew concerned and called police. They were pretty comfortable doing what they did. So they were obviously casing the neighborhood. Investigators won't elaborate on any potential motive or if the attackers and their victim had any prior contact, with the suspect still at large. Uh, first is a, a white man, six feet tall, long brown beard and a medium build, about 30 to 40 years old. The second is uh, he appears indigenous or Hispanic, also six feet, a heavy build with dark balding hair, also between 30 and 50 years old. And by now they could be anywhere, which is why police are warning the public to be on guard and to confirm the authenticity of any officers through a badge or a call to dispatch. Prior to this, I 100% would have opened the door and I have a five-year-old daughter at home as well. We're, we're very upset that this happened to our neighbor. As an unsuspecting innocent victim remains clinging to life. Sarah McDonald, Global News. RCMP are remaining tight-lipped about the arrest of a Surrey Mountie who was allegedly found in a vehicle with known gang associates. As Catherine Urquhart reports, law enforcement experts are concerned the incident will further erode public trust 
and our national police force. Six people have been murdered in recent weeks, all victims of escalating gang warfare in Metro Vancouver. Now there are allegations of a dirty cop, a Surrey Mountie who was arrested last week by an anti-corruption unit. Sources say that at the time, he was in a vehicle with known gangsters. The RCMP say they won't reveal more information about the officer until he is charged criminally. Spokesperson Don Roberts told Global News it's not just about privacy, but rather procedural fairness. She says the charges will provide more context. The arrest is prompting outrage within the policing community. Members of the RCMP and municipal forces are upset by the news and worried about how it erodes public trust. The troubling aspect of this is the public trust issue. Uh, police are at a, uh, a lower mark on the public trust uh, radar right now, and I think we have to work at ensuring that police are able to garnish the trust from the public. The officer, who has been with the Mounties for less than two years, was released from custody. He is suspended and facing an internal code of conduct review. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And we have some breaking news for you now about a rebate that drivers are about to get from ICBC. Let's get right to Richard Zussman, who's live in Victoria with the exclusive details. Okay, Richard, ICBC has been saving a lot of money during the pandemic. Now it looks like they're prepared to give some of it back. Yeah, Chris, we've been asking for months and months and months why BC is the only jurisdiction in Canada where drivers did not receive a COVID-19 rebate. Well, that is going to change tomorrow. Global News has learned that Premier John Horgan, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, and ICBC CEO Nicholas Jimenez will announce that BC drivers are receiving a COVID-19 pandemic rebate. And we're not quite sure how this is going to work. Those details will come tomorrow at 12:30 last week Jimenez the CEO said that the uh, public insurer had an income of more than 410 million dollars and they were still calculating how many much of that was linked to the pandemic we'll find out that tomorrow how much drivers will receive Chris and the big question of when drivers will get that rebate can't wait to get more information tomorrow thanks very much for that Richard all right, now to contract talks around Canada Line. Members of the BCGEU are in a legal strike position, but they are still talking. Our Aaron MacArthur is live with the latest right now. Aaron, I, any idea how close they are to a deal tonight? Well, Chris, as you said, they are still talking, and the BCGU said this morning and continues to say this evening, as long as talks are progressing, they will continue to talk and picket lines won't go up. But this is a negotiation that has dragged on for the better part of a year. The BCGU has been without a contract since 2019. They've been trying to hammer out a deal since last February. The union asking for wage parity with colleagues on the SkyTrain system, as well as some contract language that has to be sorted out. The union issued that strike notice on Friday after a week of mediation didn't go anywhere, but the two sides were at the table through the weekend. Progress was made, enough so that talks are still ongoing, and the BCGU president is confident those talks will continue. We've certainly made some progress. Um, that's why we're at the table. The, as I said, the conversations are productive. 
So, um, you know, I don't have the details on exactly where they are in terms of conversation, but what I understand is the committee is committed to stay there. And unless the talks break down, we're in it for the duration until we land a deal. Now, if those talks do break down and picket lines do go up, we will monitor the situation closely and have the very latest for you. Chris. All right. Thanks very much, Aaron. Aaron MacArthur outside the Broadway City Hall station. BC's public safety minister is hinting at more charges against the person responsible for a huge party and possible illegal nightclub in a downtown Vancouver high-rise over the weekend. That follows the largest police bust yet for violating pandemic restrictions. Ramina Dea reports. Police say 42-year-old Momo Visaji was hiding behind a chair when officers entered his Vancouver penthouse early Sunday morning with a warrant. Get free your place in the wagon. Do you have anything else that we've missed on you? Officers attended. They found 78 people inside the three-level apartment. Uh, my understanding is none of them were, were wearing masks. Uh, this appeared to be operating as a nightclub and uh, a bit of a show lounge. There were menus, there were tables, there were point-of-sale terminals in their cash tills throughout. i never been arrested. I don't know. I don't... The VPD handed out more than $17,000 in fines. 77 people were issued a $230 ticket for attending a non-compliant event. Movisaji was charged with two counts under the Public Health Act for hosting an event and permitting an event. He was taken to jail, but he was released on five conditions. It's not the first time Movisaji has been investigated for allegedly violating public health orders. Sunday's raid was the sixth time this month. Police say they've received complaints about social gatherings in the penthouse. Police fined an alleged doorman $2,500 on January 23rd. The owner of the penthouse refused to open the door. Police requested a search warrant, but it was denied. Don't you have anything more important to do right now than waste an owner's time who's just minding his own business on a Saturday night doing nothing? If you're stupid enough to think that the, uh, the rules don't apply to you, if you're dumb enough to uh, think that uh, you can endanger people's health uh, and that you're going to get away with it and you won't be punished, you're wrong. It's not my job to, uh, to meet out the punishment for these types of offences. I do think it was offensive um, that that was happening and I am appreciative that the police took the action they did. The case now in the hands of the Crown Prosecutor. $10,000 in fines and one year jail time can be considered. Movisaji is due back in court February 22nd. His court-ordered release conditions state he must open the door to police, comply with the Public Health Act, no parties, no alcohol in the penthouse, and only one person allowed inside. Movisaji's lawyer says the allegations are unproven. Romina Dea, Global News. It's been a stressful and unsettling day for many parents, students, and staff at Garibaldi Secondary School in Maple Ridge. Health officials there have been conducting COVID-19 tests after the school alerted families that someone who tested positive had been in close contact with someone else who had a variant of the virus. Grace Key has the latest. 
The Maple Ridge COVID-19 testing center was open Monday only to students and staff from Garibaldi Secondary. Someone at the school tested positive for the virus and is a contact of a person who has a variant. Cohorts were tested for the variant and got the rapid test. We have now uh, worked with Fraser Health and the laboratory in Fraser Health to uh, do testing on all of the cohort um, that was with that uh, person in the school. So that's about uh, just uh, under 80 people. We found out at 7.30 at night and we were in for an appointment time by uh, 12.30 the next day. And within two hours after that, we had our first um, negative test which is fantastic. Um, and then we're waiting two to three days to get the secondary testing. Parents got a letter on January 21st warning of a possible exposure on the 18th and 19th. On Sunday, parents were told the person at the school is being tested for the variant. The case with the variant does not attend the school. Parents first learned of a problem when some teachers told students simply not to come to school on Monday. We had three and a half hours of worry and concern and also trying to uh, figure out what the message even meant, just telling students just to stay home. There was no connection with it being COVID related, just don't come to school tomorrow. And uh, put more questions than answers into our minds. It's the last day of the quarter semester for students at Garibaldi. On Thursday, they head back to school, but in different classes. The issue once again raises the argument for mandatory masks and better communication. Our district, um, is, is encouraging students to wear masks at that quarter turnaround for two weeks. Um, but if we had a province-wide mandate for the masks, it would help alleviate all of that, at least at the secondary level. The school remained open on Monday, and anyone who tested negative for the rapid test and doesn't have symptoms is able to return to school. Grace Key, Global News. Now a look at the latest COVID-19 numbers for B.C. Health officials reporting on three counting periods today. And we have a total of 1,158 new cases, bringing B.C.'s total to just shy of 68,000. Sadly, 21 more people have died, which means we've now lost 1,210 people to complications. 289 people are in hospital, 79 patients in the ICU. 61,117 are considered recovered. And that leaves us with 4,134 active cases and 7,240 in self-isolation. Keith Baldry joins us now live. And Keith, let's talk a little bit, uh, little bit about these variants. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Henry says we now have 18 cases, four of the South African variant, 14 of the UK. Mm -hmm. How great is the concern here? Oh, the concern is mounting, I can tell you that. Uh, just taking a look at what's happening in Ontario, the modeling there suggests there's going to be a surge of the variant viruses in that province. The UK is the most prevalent. South Africa is also very worrisome. There's sort of uh, emerging science of that suggests they're not only are they more transmissible and infectious, but South Africa may actually pose more of a danger. And the cases, as you mentioned, are rising in BC. Seven of the UK variety were discovered on the weekend. Dr. Henry today saying now they're deploying resources to the point of uh, sort of improving how much contact tracing is going on to find this virus before it gets out of hand. Here's Dr. Henry. We are seeing some transmission in communities of this variant and there's been a number of outbreaks in long-term care homes in Ontario that have been associated particularly with the UK, uh, the B117 variant. So we have stepped up our surveillance. We are monitoring and testing in outbreaks particularly. 
Well, there's still some confusion when it comes to ski hills, Keith, especially mm-hmm. in Whistler. Dr. Henry was asked about hotels that are advertising deals right now. So yeah. is it advised that people go or not? Well, first of all, she doesn't like the hotel advertising. That was made very clear today. That's improper from her point of view. You do not want people to travel right now. And when it comes to skiing, she says, think locally. Uh, If you're in Metro Vancouver, local ski hills presumably would be like Cypress, Grouse, and Seymour, not Whistler. She says Whistler continues to be a problem with a number of restaurants there having to be closed because you see people not sort of misbehaving on the ski hill itself, but afterwards or before when the virus can spread much more easily. Again, here's Dr. Henry on the need to stay local. We have been discouraging, particularly out-of-province and absolutely out-of-country travel right now as being too risky. As well, we're asking people to stay local and to go to their local ski hills, stay in their local communities. Um, That's really important to support your local community and the, the, the businesses in those communities. So one other thing that came up today, Chris, Super Bowl Sunday, Dr. Henry says no parties are allowed. Uh, It's not a public health order, but events are banned under public health order. So if a bar or a restaurant is organizing an event to have a Super Bowl party, they're breaking the law. They'll be fine. There'll be added enforcement this Sunday. There's going to be people out there with the authority to slap fines on any establishments that break the rules and have Super Bowl parties. All right. Let's hope people do the right thing. Keith, thanks very much for that. All right, you can make it seven bars or restaurants in Whistler now that have recorded potential COVID-19 exposures in the past week or so. The latest is the Amsterdam Cafe Pub. The risk is said to be low, but Vancouver Coastal Health is advising anyone who has been there between January 11th to 25th to monitor themselves for symptoms. New developments in the baffling murder of Victoria realtor Lindsay Buziak still ahead. She was killed while showing a house 13 years ago. And investigators say they have new clues to go on. That story next on the News Hour. February is Black History Month, and there's pressure to improve the curriculum in BC schools. That's coming up on the News Hour. And BC rolls out some new benefits for businesses that transition to electric vehicles. We'll tell you more about that later. Right now, though, Saanich police are not giving up on solving the mysterious murder of Victoria realtor Lindsay Buziak. They're now partnering with the FBI to check out some new leads using experts in genealogy. Buziak's baffling murder happened as she was showing a house 13 years ago. And as Kylie Stanton reports, her killer or killers are still out there. Lindsay's gone. They say time heals all wounds, but 13 years later, this one only becomes more difficult to bear. It especially troubles me that for whatever reason, this murder is unsolved. Lindsay Buziak was stabbed to death on February 2nd, 2008. She was 24 years old. The real estate agent was showing this home on D'Souza Place. A couple arrived around 5.30 in the evening, and less than an hour later, police were called. What happened in that time remains a mystery. Lindsay Buziak was murdered in the upstairs bedroom. Despite a Crime Stoppers reenactment, a Dateline special. She was just lying on her back. And thousands of tips, no arrests have been made. Thanks for coming out. I appreciate it very much. And so every year, Lindsay's family and friends walk to keep the case moving forward. Tomorrow for me is murder day. I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm looking for arrests and charges. But this year, Saanich police are speaking out as well. I'm here today to update you on our efforts. Releasing this video, announcing a task force dedicated to the case, comprised of Saanich Police, the RCMP, 
and the FBI. Everything's being revisited, everything's being looked at again, and um, we hope that uh, continuing to open these doors will provide answers into uh, justice for Lindsay's death. The FBI reached out to Saanich PD in early 2020, and investigators have been working together ever since, focusing on DNA and genealogy technology not available at the time of the crime. It's an opportunity for us to explore new avenues, and uh, and hopefully that would elicit uh, new tips and leads in this investigation. Investigators add they still think there are people in the community who know something about what happened that day and are hopeful they come forward. Lindsay's father, on the other hand... I don't hope because I don't really live in hope. He says what's important now is action, calling Saanich PD's announcement simply a PR campaign. I've heard every version of what Saanich police have had to say about their dedication and new techniques they're using, and we have no results. Right now, what counts are arrests and charges. Words mean nothing at this point. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Also today, the Victoria and Saanich Police Departments are announcing they're teaming up to form a new integrated canine service. The new unit will be made up of current Saanich and Vic PD canine handlers and their service dogs covering Saanich, Victoria and Esquimalt. Both forces say the partnership will provide cost savings and better service delivery with coverage seven days a week. This partnership will provide greater efficiency and better value for police canine services for all our communities. The new Joint Dog Squad launches today and it's going to operate out of the Victoria Police Esquimalt Division headquarters. Still ahead, huge cash transactions at BC casinos. Did the British Columbia Lottery Corporation consider imposing a, a cap on cash? Not at that time, no how the flow of dirty money went on for years. And a BC company perfecting wastewater heat recovery technology and the massive project they'll develop in Denver. Traffic is busy here eastbound at the Portman Bridge. This is due to a stall at the west end in the right through lane. Volume is starting to build out of Coquitlam on the approach. Want access to the HOV lane? Beat rush hour traffic in the Chevrolet Bolt EV with up to 417 kilometers of range. Visit ChevroletOffers.ca. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Cullen Commission testimony over the past couple of days features a former and a current higher up from the BC Lottery Corporation, and it appears neither of them believed money laundering was a big problem at BC casinos. And as John Waugh reports, that's despite evidence of what became known as the Vancouver model of cleaning dirty cash. It's become known as the Vancouver model. High rollers were loaned dirty money to be played and even lost in BC casinos. Upon repayment, often outside Canada, organized crime gets cash that's now clean. To me, it's, it's either money laundering is converting uh, dirty money into an asset. And the casino, they could not do that. Terry Towns, who was once in charge of security and compliance at the BC Lottery Corporation for more than a decade, telling the Cullen Commission he doesn't believe casinos were used to clean criminal cash, even today. With the benefit of hindsight now, do, do, do you believe that British Columbia casinos were used to facilitate the laundering of proceeds of crime? No. Despite concerns from the gaming regulator that funds coming into casinos was proceeds of crime, BCLC focused on how a player stated they earned their money. You took the word for it. Yeah, more or less, I'd take the word for it. Figuring out who provided the high rollers with bags filled with suspicious cash was less of a concern. Oh, that wasn't considered at that time. 
During Town's tenure, the only time BCLC ordered cash be refused by casinos was if a player didn't have identification or if the cash looked like a prop from a crime movie. Um, cash had blood on it. Another one um, that I recall, the, the cash had been uh, burnt. How BCLC investigators saw suspicious stacks of $20 bills would become an issue for the man who took over for Towns in 2013. Brad Damaris told the Cullen Commission he looked at hiring outside the pool of mostly former police. Well, throughout their career, they dealt with uh, drug traffickers. And where there are drug traffickers, there is money. I felt that there was uh, uh, maybe a bit of confirmation bias. Commission counsel pointing out that many times BCLC's now chief operating officer provided other explanations for large amounts of suspicious cash flowing into BC casinos. Underground banks, cash businesses, even people smuggling Canadian currency into the country. The intent behind reviewing all of these potential sources was simply to understand what the landscape was. Like Towns, the man currently in charge of BCLC security and compliance was asked one key question. The patrons using these large quantities of $20 bills were at least could be facilitating the transfer of or laundering of proceeds of crime. We still don't clearly understand it. And without that understanding, despite concerns from the gaming regulator and even law enforcement, the BC Lottery Corporation would wait more than a decade to try and stop the flow of dirty cash coming into BC casinos. John Hua, Global News. Up ahead, watching endangered whales from space. 366 individuals that are known to exist, so it's critically endangered. Spotting North Atlantic right whales in the vastness of the ocean is a real challenge, but this BC company has found a way to do it. But first, how well do you really know Canada's black history? Why some say it's way past time to update the curriculum. Counterflow is out over at the Massey Tunnel and traffic is steady in both directions. A reminder though, overnight road work has the right lane block southbound on Highway 99 south of Ladner Trunk Road from 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. For 47 years, Kermac Collision and Autoglass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. As Black History Month begins, the Anti-Racism Coalition of Vancouver is calling on BC's Education Ministry to speed up changes to the province's curriculum. They want the resources and training in place so that kids and teachers can learn more about BC's rich black history. Jordan Armstrong reports. Do British Columbians really know Canada's black history? I put that question to Valerie Jerome, teacher, Olympian, and sister to famed sprinter, the late Harry Jerome. No, they don't. No, they don't know it at all. Maybe they recall learning about the Underground Railroad in school, but Jerome says that's often where the story and the curiosity ends. They're not just not curious and a little bit disinterested, but they've almost been encouraged to think that we're either dirty, stupid, criminal, Jerome retired from daily teaching 20 years ago, but she's still active in classrooms as a guest speaker. Last year, she was approached by a Vancouver father whose young daughter was being called the N-word at school. So the father went up to see the principal, and the principal's response was, you know, we didn't have any racism here until you came. 
Clearly, we have a long way to go. In recent months, the Anti-Racism Coalition of Vancouver has been petitioning the B.C. government to make Black Shirt Day official in schools, as well as calling for an update to the curriculum. It's very important history, not only for you know black Canadians to feel representative, but it's Canadian history. So it's really important that we all learn um, the history of Canada. We gave the education minister two days last week to do an interview, but Jennifer Whiteside's office said she was too busy to talk to us. Instead, they gave us this statement, quote, BC's curriculum supports the teaching of black history topics, but we understand there is more work to be done to ensure an anti-racism lens is core in BC's curriculum. That's why we are working with representatives of the BC Black History Awareness Society to identify teacher and student resources. No timeline, no real action plan, says Williams. Not much has been done. It seems like the government is still kind of dragging their heels on on this. Updating the student curriculum wouldn't be enough, says Jerome. Every level of the education system, from the training to the ministry, down to the classroom teacher, that we have to face um, racism if we're going to defeat it. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. The province is boosting incentives to encourage businesses with vehicle fleets to choose green. Under the Go Electric Fleets program, small businesses, municipal governments and indigenous nations can access rebates if they transition to an electric fleet. Buying new EVs now qualifies businesses for the same $3,000 rebate the general public can get. And there's also a $4,000 rebate to offset the cost of installing charging stations. It is, uh, I find, exciting to see BC communities and companies eager to make the switch to electric vehicles, moving us towards our clean BC goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We know that the regional district of Kootenai Boundary is one of the many regions in BC focused on reducing their carbon footprint through the adoption of EVs. The Clean BC Go Electric program also offers free support services, including technical assessments for charging infrastructure. In health matters tonight, the federal government is going to spend more than $15 million to fund four safe drug supply programs. The money will go to four projects in Vancouver and Victoria to provide medical grade opioid drugs as an alternative to the highly toxic fentanyl-laced street drug supply. The initiative is also aiming to connect drug users with street level social and health services. In the first 11 months of 2020, more than 1,500 British Columbians died of a suspected drug overdose or drug toxicity. Up ahead, the power of sewage. Shark has turned into a really a, a global powerhouse in the sewage uh, heat recovery business. How this BC company is tapping a resource that used to go right down the drain. And in sports, the return of one of the most electrifying receivers in Canadian football and how Brian Burnham punked his teammate. A Vancouver-based company is using space-age technology to develop a system to protect North Atlantic whales. As Linda Aylesworth reports, they're hoping to save them from ships and fishing nets, and they're hoping to eventually bring the technology to the West Coast. There's a life-or-death struggle underway on the Atlantic coast. At stake, the survival of the North Atlantic right whale. There are approximately 366 individuals that are known 
to exist. So it's critically endangered. On Canada's Pacific coast, Dr. Andy Dean has joined the effort to save the right whales from their two greatest threats, fishing gear entanglements and being struck by ships, an effort that requires finding them in the first place. So looking for them is a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack. So what we need is all the support that we can get to know where to look. Dr. Dean and his colleagues at Hatfield Consulting in North Vancouver have joined the Canadian Space Agency to achieve that goal using images taken from space. This is an example of whales captured in satellite imagery. They're developing a deep learning technology that will greatly enhance the satellite's images. The objective, of course, is to identify a whale and then be able to specifically identify that this whale is a right whale compared to other species. Currently, right whale surveillance is done in planes, which can only cover so much area. The hope with satellite technology? Better monitor and detect the whale, modelize their area, so better know where they could go next and better predict their movement. So we might catch whales in the imagery that would otherwise have not been detected. And that's important, because if they know where the whales are, they can tell ships in the area to slow down and look out. It's a technology that could be used to help any number of marine species. Satellite-derived information could support better conservation and protection of mammals on the West Coast. We're sure of that. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. All right, a lot of people wondering where winter is. People who haven't maybe gone to the mountains recently, but uh, rest assured, winter is out there, just maybe not here. That's right. And it even took a while to get there in eastern Canada, but certainly in place there now. This is Lake Michigan. You can see the ice accumulating and images coming out of New York. Now, uh, this is potentially the worst snowstorm. Um, well, it is the worst snowstorm so far this year where some areas could see a meter of snow. But if they get that, it could rank as one of the top five or top ten worst snowstorms on record for this area. It's a very slow moving storm. It's moving up the eastern seaboard and it is going to hit eastern Canada. 35 centimeters of snow for Quebec, heavy rain along coastal regions, and then wind gusts up to 150 kilometers an hour, and that's likely through the day tomorrow. Meanwhile, for us here, we haven't seen a lot of snow. We had near-average precipitation, but January was very mild. We were above average by 1.2 degrees, and we only had a trace of snowfall. And when we look at western Canada, that was the case as well. You can see the legend on the left showing the anomaly, so that that's the above, uh, or the temperature above average, and it is significant in northeastern BC by plus four or five degrees. So this anomaly is being felt right across BC and Canada, but we're seeing significant snow in the mountains, and I urge you to remember Avalanche Canada has put out a high avalanche risk for all of the south coast and Sea to Sky Mountains, and this is the reason why. More snow on the way. Whistler, a snowfall warning, 20 centimeters. Hope, uh, to merit. So Coquihalla 20 and that's Rogers Pass as well and Kootenay Pass. Now meanwhile further north snow there as well but only two to five centimeters of snow and no snow lower down. So lower elevation regions we're really talking about rainfall. It's just higher up but not likely the local mountains. Tomorrow it is it is going to be a little bit milder but certainly snow up towards Whistler. Uh, tomorrow's Groundhog's Day so uh, maybe the little groundhog will not see its shadow. We could see early spring at the very least some sunshine in store for us on Wednesday. Wednesday and Friday and tonight's central windows weather window from 100 mile house. Dave sending us that one nice shot of the sun. 
glimmering on the snowfall there. It's beautiful. Dave's going to be doing some shoveling. Yeah. What that looks like. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. And here's Squire now joining us with a look ahead to sports. There's a game going on. Or is it over Don't now? Don't tell it's, anyone. It's over now. It's over. Oh. <laughs> it, some say and it might have been what? over a lot sooner. If you're a Canuck fan, be glad it is. <laughs> uh, you can give the Ottawa Senators, for example, as many chances as you want, but you shouldn't do that with the Montreal Canadiens. It's Corey Perry making moves in on goal. Petrie scores. The Canucks' first game in Montreal on this road trip was Trey Ugly. <laughs> Also coming up, dirty water, clean energy, a B.C. company harnessing power from every flush later. Back with sports and uh, Canucks watch continues. When's this team going to turn it around? Well, they did win four straight, of course. Mind you, three of those were against Ottawa. Then they went into Winnipeg and won a game, which a lot of people thought they might not be able to. So they took a four-game winning streak into Montreal. Hmm. They say your best players have to be your best players in order to win. But what happens when your best players are your worst players? The Canucks gave us an unvarnished look at what happens. And if you're a Canuck fan, viewer discretion is advised. BC boy Shea Weber getting very close to 1,000 games in his illustrious career. First goal of the game was exactly one minute in. Nick Suzuki's in front and he beats Braden Holpe. No one near him. one nothing. Now the Canucks are on the power play, and Adam Gaudet loses it. Arturi Lekanen, in, move, goal. As I said, you want to give away the puck to Ottawa? Go ahead, do it all night. They won't beat you, but Montreal will. Uh, Gaudet does make up for that mistake, though. He gets a goal here as Montreal now gives a puck away in the neutral zone. And Carey Price gets beat by Gaudet. That made it 2-1. to one. That's as close as Vancouver would get in this game. If you're not counting 0-0 at the opening faceoff. Then that's pretty close. Uh, Jeff Petrie, why are all the Canucks on one side of the ice? Goal, 3-1 for Montreal. Jalen Chatfield, whoops. Another giveaway. This time it's Brendan Gallagher. Backhand, 4-1. We showed this goal just before the break. The lotto line tonight, all three were minus three. That's what I said. Your best players are your worst players. Quinn Hughes was a minus two. Another goal by uh, Jeff Petrie there on a four on two. Travis Green has a teaching moment. Turning up the volume to 11 on his players who don't dare look back. And then this one off Tyler Myers and the Weber. Then the Tyler to Foley again. Getting the Canucks back for not re-signing him. 6-2 the final. They'll play again tomorrow. Check out this goal tonight by former Canuck Chris Tanev. From behind his own blue line. Scores! What? I know. Even he can't figure out how it went in. But it went in. It's the only goal Calgary has. They're down 2-1 in the third period to Winnipeg. All right, the BC Lions' next training camp. Think about this. It will be a full two years after their last training camp in 2019. Now, because a lot of fans might have forgotten who plays for the BC Lions or what they even look like, the Lions signed a couple of familiar faces today. Linebacker Bo Lacombo, who last played for BC in 2018, and receiver Brian Burnham, who of course has been here since 2014. One thing is for sure, Brian Burnham and Bo Lacombo, for that matter, should be well-rested for 2021. Rolls right, looks deep, that's Burnham, 
I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Honestly, I, I kind of, it sounds crazy, but I kind of miss the, the everyday pain of, uh, of football and, and just having those aches and pains, man. It's just, it's kind of weird. I, it's strange to say that I miss it. It's now been a full calendar year without the grind of an 18-game CFL season. Had Brian Burnham not signed a new one-year contract extension, he would have been a hot commodity on the free agent market. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers had already reached out to Burnham about wearing the blue and gold, but in the end, he took a hometown discount to spend another year in the lion's den. Although, that's not the conversation he shared with his good friend and roommate on the road, Mike Riley. I, I wanted to mess with them a little bit, so I answered the phone and it was just kind of had a sad look on my face and was just telling them, you know, how much I enjoyed playing with them and all this and that. But, you know, I had, I had to pull the strings a little bit. So he got a little nervous and thought I was saying goodbyes. But, um, you know, I was excited to tell him that I was coming back and, uh, you know, he was happy. So are BC Lions fans because Mike Riley and Brian Burnham are one of the best passing and catching duos in the CFL. In 2019, Burnham became just the second receiver in Lions history to record four straight 1,000-plus yard seasons. And if you're worried about how a year-long layoff may affect Burnham, who will turn 31 prior to the start of the season, don't be. So having this time away, you know, you look at the bright side, my body feels amazing. I mean, I can't uh, just being able to walk around and not having that soreness in your feet and your knees and and it just it feels really good and uh i know there's guys around the league who i'm sure appreciate the time that they've had to to heal up and get their bodies uh you know back to back to feeling normal bianca andrescu has uh, pulled out of the warm-up tournament for the australian open tennis tournament but uh she still plans on playing the aussie open which starts february 8th she hasn't played since uh, 2019 because of a knee injury. There you go. All right, thanks very much, Squire. Here's Jay Durant now with a preview of Global News tonight at 11. Jay. Thank you, Chris. We're following down-to-the-wire talks that are taking place tonight to avoid job action at the Canada line. Plus, we'll look at what the rules are for watching the Super Bowl this weekend. The province made a game-day decision and pulled the plug on New Year's Eve celebrations. And some bars are worried the same could happen for the big game. All those stories and a lot more when you join us tonight at 11, Chris. All right, sounds good. Thanks very much, Jay. And when we come back, how a B.C. company called Shark is taking a big bite out of the alternative energy industry. That's next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. A B.C.-based company that turns wastewater into energy is seeing some big interest south of the border with the new environmentally friendly Biden administration. Ted Chernecki explains how the green technology gives back 
and why the Olympic Village plant, where it's already in use, could get a significant boost. Just below those five silver steam vents on the south end of the Cabbies Tree Bridge, and not so deep into the bowels of the earth, there's a plant with a tangle of pipes and pumps. They take relatively warm sewage wastewater, temporarily separates the solids, then extracts heat from the filtered water, before putting the solid nasties back into the city stream where they go on their merry way. And now it's all enclosed, so no smell. There's about a trillion dollars a year worth of energy that's flowing six feet below the surface of all cities around the world. So rather than drilling holes, you know, five miles deep in the earth to extract fossil fuels, why don't we just reuse the energy that's being thrown away every day? It's an idea former Premier Mike Harcourt, the chairman of Quality of Urban Energy Systems of Tomorrow, or Quest, first heard about when he invited the founder of Shark Energies for a presentation. This terrific idea, and all of a sudden I went, ah, this has got to happen. Built to heat the 2010 Olympic Village, Vancouver now wants to quadruple the Canby Street plant because it can be done within existing underground structure. For every dollar you spend to recover energy, you get about four to five dollars worth of energy back. Shark Energy has wastewater recovery plants in North Vancouver, Richmond, and just recently was chosen by the city of Denver to supply its technology there. The Denver one is really one of the largest residential scale adoptions of the sewage heat recovery technology in the world. The Port Coquitlam company sees huge opportunities with a green energy-minded Biden administration. Take New York City, for example. This is enough energy to melt 3.77 billion tons of ice, the same weight as 11,000 Empire State Buildings. And to think it all started, as so many good ideas do, at home. I know that I was spending $1,000 a year in hot water and just throwing it away. Wastewater sewage in Vancouver runs at about 23 degrees Celsius. By the time it leaves here, it's down into the mid-teens. Think of it as a giant refrigerator with the heat your fridge throws off the back being captured, heated further, and sent as far as 8 kilometers away to heat homes and businesses. Ted Chernick, Global News. Pretty amazing. It's great. All right. Uh... So we know that winter exists in some places on the lower mainland here, but certainly not in my neighborhood, and I don't know if it, uh, if no. it does in yours, Christy. And we have no snow in the forecast for lower elevation regions, but bear in mind, heavy snow expected in the mountains, as we talked about, snowfall warning up to Whistler and along the Coquihalla, and there is an, a high avalanche risk right now, so check out Avalanche Canada for more details on that. In the meantime, I'm hoping the groundhog will not see its shadow tomorrow with light rain expected. Certainly not a soaker tomorrow, but light rain on and off. And if he doesn't see a shadow, that means spring could come early. Mm. Non-officially, of course. We'll wait to see. (laughs) (laughs) I like the fact the groundhog has a hat, and I do believe a bow tie. That's true. Mm -hmm. Sharp-dressed man. (laughs) Thanks very much for watching, everybody. Sophie's back tomorrow. We'll see you then.